Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious and holy God, I pray now that you would pour your Holy Spirit through me that these words might truly become your living word to your people. And I pray that you would open up each of our hearts and minds that we might receive that word exactly in the place that we need to hear it. For we pray this in the name of our risen and reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. This morning we are concluding our sermon series on the temptations of Jesus. After Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven declared, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit then led Jesus out into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. When Jesus was exhausted and hungry, the devil came to him, first tempting him to use his power to satisfy his hunger on something other than the Word of God, and then by tempting him to put his father to the test so that he might become certain about his father's love and care and protection. Both times, Jesus defeated Satan's attack by turning to the holy words of Scripture. So Satan then took Jesus up to the top of a very high mountain and showed him a vision of all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And Satan said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You did come to save all these kingdoms, didn't you, Jesus? To gather them up into your kingdom? I mean, that is your mission, isn't it? Well, I can help you out with that. In fact, I can make it so much easier for you. 
There's no need to struggle for three long years with disappointing disciples and demanding crowds and jealous religious leaders. I can give you the crown without any need for the cross. No pain, no suffering, no disappointment, no betrayal, no death. All the nations will follow you, and your kingdom can be established right here, right now. Just bend the knee before me, and it can all be yours. Before we write this off and, and assume that surely Jesus would never be tempted to make such a deal with the devil, remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments before Jesus was arrested, the one thing he asked of his father was if he could be spared from the cross. Be very sure this temptation was very real. After all, it's not like Satan was tempting him with something uh, wicked or, or sinful or immoral. It's not like Satan said, worship me and I will make you a very successful drug dealer. Or worship me and your mafia empire will expand the globe. He didn't even say, worship me and I will give you my beach house in St. John where you can live out your days in peaceful paradise. That would not have been very tempting for Jesus. I would have hit the ground in a heartbeat. But not Jesus. He was far too committed to his mission and this world that he came to save. No, what made this, this deal with Satan so tempting was that the devil was offering to help Jesus out with his very mission. He was just going to give Jesus a little shortcut. This is what makes all of Satan's deals so insidious. For he always tries to make us believe that the ends always justify the means. As long as you still accomplish your very good goal, now what does it matter if you compromise a little uh, in order to get there? There's nothing wrong with cutting a few corners and you know, turning a blind eye now and then. Bend the truth a little here, cheat a little there. I mean, it's easy enough for us to justify, isn't it? I mean, after all, our families are counting on us. Our clients are counting on us. The shareholders are counting on us. People in need are counting on us. God is counting on us. And of course, we all want to be good parents and good workers and good employers and good citizens and good Christians making a difference in this world. And Satan wants to help us out with those very worthy things. All you have to do is make a little deal with the devil, and all of your dreams will come true. 
But every time we compromise our integrity, our morals, our decency, our sense of right and wrong, even for something that appears to be very good, we sell a little bit more of our soul to Satan. And no amount of supposed good is ever worth that. As Jesus himself says in chapter 16, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And we always lose when we make a deal with the devil. So Jesus in response to Satan's very generous offer, quotes scripture for a third time, saying, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. You see, whatever we choose to worship becomes our God. And we always become like the thing we worship. So when we engage in idolatry, which is worshiping anything other than the God who made us, we actually become less than fully human. For human beings were made in the image of our Creator. So it is only when we worship God that we actually become truly human. But Pate, but, but, but Satan is particularly good at peddling all kinds of idols that look like very good things to us, like our country, or our careers, or our security, or our rights, or our children. And, oh, we'll, we'll do just about anything for our children, won't we? But perhaps the thing that we are most tempted to turn into an idol is ourselves. Remember, the serpent tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden by saying, Eat this, and you will be like God. A temptation that has never lost its appeal. And one of Satan's favorite ways of selling us this idol of self, which destroys our humanity and sabotages our God-given mission in life, is by convincing us to make ourselves the center of worship rather than God. Now, we do this in a, a variety of ways, but, but mainly by by treating worship as an instrumental means to some other end, with that end often being keeping all the paying customers happy and attracting more paying customers. But if that is the church's primary goal, then it will always be tempted to make all kinds of compromises in order to achieve it, particularly in our worship. But what Jesus understood so clearly is that worship is never a means to an end. Worship 
is the end. It's what we were created to do. As the, the first question of the shorter catechism of the uh, Westminster Confession asks, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were put on this earth to worship God. We don't worship in order to achieve some other goals, even good ones like evangelism. No, we go out and share the gospel so that more people will come and worship to the end that every knee should bend and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Worship itself is the goal. Part of the reason that we get so confused by this is that we live in a culture that that promotes such an extraordinary kind of individualism and self-absorption, particularly through all of our social media, where everything is all about us, all about me, me, me. Our cultural motto might as well be, have it your way right away. And since we've been trained by our culture to be such spectacular consumers, well, it's, it's inevitable that we tend to bring that mentality with us into worship. And so the primary question we tend to ask ourselves after worship is, what did I get out of that? Did the sermon give me the message that I wanted? Did the music give me the feeling that I wanted? Did the performance of the acolytes and the clothing of the people sitting around me give me the experience that I wanted? But you see, that's making ourselves the center of worship and our experience the goal of worship. And every time we do that, Satan just laughs and laughs and says, mission accomplished. Barbara Brown Taylor is an Episcopal priest and author who tells of a time a woman came up to her after a worship service and said, you know, I really didn't like that last hymn that we sang. Taylor responded, that's okay, we weren't singing to you. (laughs) See, worship is not a a spectator sport that's meant to entertain us. No, it is a service that we come to perform. That's why we call it liturgy. You see, the word liturgy is a translation of the Greek word leturgia, which comes from two other words, leos, which means people, and ergon, which means work. Originally, it meant something like public works. Whenever someone was doing something, not just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of others, like paving a road, or building a bridge, or or doing charitable work like 
feeding the hungry or giving alms to the poor. It was called liturgy. And, and when the priests in the temple in Jerusalem were, were performing their duties and, and the, the sacrifices on behalf of all the people, it was also called liturgy. And so when the early church started describing what they were doing in their worship as liturgy, everyone immediately understood that, that what they were doing was not just for their own benefit, for their own sake, but they were doing it as an act of public service. And their liturgy didn't stop in their sanctuary. No, their entire lives became an act of liturgy in service to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. By contrast, there was a different Greek word that was used to describe private rituals and performances done in worship of the pagan mystery gods with the goal of achieving ecstatic union with the god or goddess, often through a temple prostitute. This kind of worship was called Orgia, which is all about me and my experience. When we forget that worship is something that we come to do, not individually, but together, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the entire world. We turn our worship into an orgy of private, individualistic feelings and experiences. We make worship all about us. This is why there will always be such a powerful temptation to try to make worship relevant. To try to meet each person's felt needs as if we could. But we're not trying to sprinkle you with a little relevance each week so that you'll come back for more. That's not true worship. Now, true worship, liturgy, is inviting you to come step into the deep river of God's great love story for you, which began long before you were born and will continue long after you are gone. Notice the prayer of confession that we said together earlier was written 1,600 years ago. Our, our first hymn was, was written almost 200 years ago. The Apostles' Creed that we'll say together in just a few minutes is probably 1,800 years old. And our entire service is filled with and centered on the holy words of Scripture, some of which are over 3,000 years old, written in a different language, in a different culture. Not exactly a recipe for relevance, is it? But you see, we're not trying to make worship relevant to you. That is getting everything turned around. No. When we engage in liturgy, in the service of worship of Almighty God, our lives get caught up together in the great biblical drama of God's unfolding salvation. 
as our stories get caught up, not just as individuals, but together in the death-conquering story of the crucified and risen Savior, which, believe me, is a lot better than any of the stories we've got going on. In worship, Jesus' story becomes our story. And in a devilish world that is constantly offering us a multitude of false identities to try on, and that is, is constantly tempting us to bow down before a dazzling display of idols that promise us an orgy of experiences and feelings and fulfillment. Liturgical worship is what keeps us on our knees serving God alone. It is also what reminds us of our true identity given to us in the waters of baptism. The beloved sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father with whom He is well pleased. And like Jesus... It's only when you are clear about that that you will ever be able to fulfill your mission in this life. And it is only when you begin to see all of life as an act of worship that you will ever be able to resist the temptation to make a lousy deal with the devil. Amen.